Now, uh, we brought in some more editions of the Concordia Journal. They're, uh, they're back there. And we're on this important chapter now, uh, chapter 8, which has to do with uh, essentially linguistic utterances as shorthand. And uh, uh, this has uh, hidden sources, uh, we, meaning blanks in the text and all this kind of stuff. Uh, now, we got into it last time, and we want to spend the majority of our time on the issue of external entailment and the notion of signifiers under other signifiers. But before we go any further, I talked about uh, incomplete uh, sentences grammatically. We talked about Second Thessalonians. A number of years ago, a student submitted a paper in which he compared what I was talking about to music. Now, this is very interesting. His name uh, is Darren Slack, and he said this, In jazz, certain notes may be intentionally missed. It creates a unique sound, or rather lack of sound. This effect is known as ghosting a note. The note is implied by the musician. The ghost note is very common in vocal improvisational scat solos and also in instrumental solos. Sometimes an entire section or ensemble may also ghost a note, although the desired effect is much harder to produce. Uh, and uh, this last statement's pretty good. In addition to the alteration of the sound of the melody that it causes, ghosting also makes the listener more active in the production slash performance of the music. Now, that's a pretty important point, that last point, is what happens when there are blanks, so to speak, in the text, whether that text be musical notes or marks on a page, it draws the receptor in to produce meaning. And we've been talking like that. Remember we said a, a while back that interpreting a text, reading some text, is not like taking marbles out of a box. It is more like assembling a puzzle. So what you're really doing is you are engaged in making meaning, assembling it together. Uh, you're involved in the meaning production. So uh, this particular uh, observation that Darren Slack made would be best exemplified in my way of thinking musically by the music of Count Basie. Uh, very spare, um, and uh, for that reason I think it's uh, quite attractive. Now, we weren't able to do it this quarter, uh, because I had that terrible laryngitis uh, earlier on. Um, but uh, we had scheduled in chapel the Jim Brower uh, jazz mid-morning prayer. Now this is done, this is a very interesting thing that he put together in 1995 and which I normally chant as the, uh, as the liturgist. He had done... He had done a concert, Jim Brower, about uh, maybe 14, 15 years ago, in which he took one melody, St. Anne, Our God, Our Help in Ages Past, and played it for this performance he was going to do in different styles, as if it had been written by Bach, um, as if it had been written by Mozart. And then, then he got on to um, uh, uh, Duke Ellington. And he did it like that. And I, I heard this, and it was really good. And I said, this is great, but personally, I'm a fan of Count Basie because of this more minimalistic ghosting style. And I said, I challenge you to write like a Matins or something like that in a Count Basie style, not rim shots and all kinds of stuff like that, but a very minimalistic thing. He did this. It was very interesting. He took like six months to listen to Count Basie music and then produced this, uh, uh, this liturgy, which is absolutely terrific. I mean, it just bummed me out that I wasn't able to do that, but I just, just couldn't sing, and so we, uh, uh, we spoke it. I preached that day, and uh, the liturgist just spoke the liturgy. Uh, we'll maybe do it in the summer. But, uh, but this, this ghosting does suck people in, does involve people in the meaning production. 
And that's part of the reason for doing it. Now, uh, the second thing was we talked a little bit about, uh, uh, well, I gave a couple of, of examples there. But then the next thing was sometimes you got this problem with blanks and so on in the text with grammatically complete sentences. Not like that one from 2 Thessalonians where all of a sudden verbs are missing and stuff like that, but grammatically complete. And then you still aren't sure. Now take a look at 1 Timothy 2.15. While you're doing that, I'm going to put up this cartoon. This is from uh, Mother Goose and Grimm. So, no dogs allowed. No dogs allowed to what? I mean, no dogs allowed is a complete sentence. But it's still kind of shorthand in that you don't know what the rest of the sentence is that's, uh, that's assumed. Now, I'd like you to take a look at 1 Timothy. This is a very interesting example. <clears throat> 1 Timothy 2.15, this difficult passage with... Uh, what Paul is saying about uh, women and uh, teaching and so forth. 2.15. So Thesatai, third person singular, will be saved through the childbirth or childbearing if they remain in faith and love and holiness with wisdom or understanding. <clears throat> well, Look at sothesitai. First of all, what's the subject? It's not expressed. Most people think that it's she will be saved. Okay? But if you look at the previous context, this may not be true. Let's go up to 13. For Adam first was made, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, having been thoroughly deceived, has come in transgression. Come to be in transgression. Well, now look here, though. You have Adam and Eve, Adam and the woman. Now, if the same pattern continues then the man would actually be the subject. He will be saved. But he will be saved through what only a woman can do, bear a child. Now, what would that mean? Well, the seed was going to bruise the serpent's head, but only the woman could bear that child. So it could be that we're to understand, I mean, this is grammatically complete, but we don't have an indication of who the subject is, so thesatai, he or she, third singular, will be saved through the bearing of a child or the child. Also notice that so thesatai does not tell you from what the person will be saved. Now, um, even if you take the subject of sothesatai to be she, is it she will be saved from death in natural childbirth? She will be saved from eternal death and sin? See, So, from what? There's a blank there. And when you interpret that text, whether you're taking that as she's going to be saved from physical harm or she's going to be saved from eternal harm, if you're taking she as the subject, you're filling in that blank of that shorthand and often in the interpretation of this passage, how that from what is filled in is going to be totally critical. Note how odd this passage goes on as long as we're looking at the passage. I want you to note how odd this is as it goes on. Because it says at the end, if they remain in faith and love 
and holiness with Sulfurcine. Sulfurcine is always wisdom in kind of this practical understanding sense. But note the third plural, if they remain. See, now, there's a kind of an indication that maybe man and woman are to be seen together here. If you take a look at your English translations, this is really an interesting point. If you take a look at your English translations, they tend to smooth this out one way or the other. They'll either make the first part of the sentence plural or the second part of the sentence singular. Now, what, uh, what version do you have there? ESV. ESV, what do they have? Yeah. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith. Oh, they, they do, they do keep it. They do that. If they, that, I mean, you have to kind of do that. All right. Uh, does anybody have a different one here? Uh, what do you have, Billy? NIV says, yeah. but women will be saved through childbearing if they can. Okay, so they go, do they go to plural to keep, to keep the two parts together? Okay, uh, what version do you have there? Us. Oh, NIV? I have an NASB. Yeah, what's that? It have? says, uh, but women italicized shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love. So, and sanctity. Now, see, now that's interesting. But women, so they go to plural, will be preserved through trial bearing. So obviously, the thing that you're preserved from is physical death in that in that particular translation. Anybody have a different translation? I'm just going to comment, perhaps it might be worth noting that in ESV, they hyphenate the sentence in the middle. They put a break in with a hyphen. Oh, okay, so they, well, what they do then is they're, they're saying that that's an anakaluthan. An anakaluthan means something that doesn't follow on smoothly directly. Great anakaluthan in Romans 8.3, where you got, Paul starts... The, the weakness of the law in which it was not able, all of a sudden he stops, boom, the law does not do, and then starts up with a nominative. So, uh, so that would be, uh, <clears throat> so, um, and anakaluthan is a... Uh, now, here's an interesting one where the, where the direct Greek derivative helps you. Akalutheo, but the an is the alpha privative like anhydrous or um, analgesic. Uh, we don't normally put the N in there because we have atheist or a moral, but when the next letter is a vowel here, then they put an N there, so that it doesn't follow on directly, so that's interesting, so they have a dash after that, yeah, and they're trying to reflect how odd that is. Anybody have any different version on that? Uh, Bill? I got King James. Oh yeah, now what does that do? Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness. Okay, so they do switch to the they, and is there a dash there? No, okay. All right, any other version afoot here? The American Standard Version says, but she shall be saved through her childbearing if they continue in faith and love and sanctification. Yeah, so through, through, through her childbearing is probably taking it in that physical sense of, uh, of death then. Couldn't it also mean the children, they, that they, if they continue in this? Well, see, actually, you're... I, I don't know, but you're, you're sort of making my point. It's a grammatically complete sentence, but that blank of not knowing what the subject is gives you exactly that problem. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, no, that was, they would. That's right. He's clearly not on the train to oblivion. Okay. Uh, now, by the way, remember we took a look at that John 20 passage that, that if you forgive anybody's sins, remember that? And I said that there is a possibility that, go, go to that. We took a look at that very briefly. John 20, 23. Now, um, this is 2023. If 
of somebody, you forgive the sins. If you forgive the sins of somebody, uh, they are forgiven to them. And then the normal way to take this is that the sins is omitted. Uh, take, would you take a look at that uh, ESV and the NIA? Who's had the NASB? Yeah, take a look at the NASB. See what they do. And if of somebody you hold on to, they are held on to. Now, normally what people do is they assume that the tas hamartias is a blank, is to be assumed there. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. However, you'll notice I've written in the margin of my Greek New Testament, Hebrews 4.14. Now, take a look at that. In Hebrews 4.14, we have another use of the verb krateo. And this is clear enough here. Kratomen tes homologias. Let us hold on to, grasp, the confession. Well, look at, though, what, what case is tes homologias? Let us hold on to the confession. What is that? Yeah, I heard it. Genitive. Yeah. So, krateo when you talk about grasping something, sort of like a verb of sense, can take the genitive. Well, that would mean then, that would mean that you could understand this last part of 23, that tinon is actually the object of kratete. See, if you grasp on to somebody, hold on to somebody, they are held on to. Well, you know, part of our issue here is do you have a blank in the text or don't you have a blank in the text? This is a, a very interesting thing, the way this sentence can actually be understood in two different ways. Now, what, what do we have there? Uh, what was the NASB? If you forgive the sins of any, uh, their sins have been forgiven them. If yeah. you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Okay, do they do any italicizing or anything? Yeah, what's italicized in that last part? Sins. Yeah, see, because they're treating that as a blank there. Yeah. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. Yes. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Oh, okay. So they're filling in the blank differently. If you withhold forgiveness. See, his, his blank is being filled in with sins. If you hold on to the sins, and your blank is retaining forgiveness. Yeah. Do they put any italics or anything? No, they don't have anything there. Okay. Good. All right. Now, um, I want to say just a little bit. A number of you asked. Mark, you asked. But Chet, where's Chet? Chet uh, asked this specifically. My main questions pertain to the alternative signifier section. And what is paradigmatic and what does syntagmatic mean? A number of you asked that point. So let's talk about this. And the example was Ephesians 2.8. And go to that because this is simply one of the great passages to illustrate all kinds of stuff. Say you're talking about traveling. JB's driving his bike to Des Moines. We encountered sleet, floods, high winds. Now, Chet, syntagmatically, think syntax. Sleet has a relationship to these other meanings as something that was encountered. Sleet's not doing the encountering. Okay, so syntagmatic is how the meanings relate to other meanings in the sentence, in the colon. Now comes paradigmatic. Paradigmatic isn't looking at the thing this way. It's looking at the thing this way. That is to say, what would the alternatives have been? Well... 
rain, snow, floods as opposed to parched weather, high winds as opposed to calm. See, in other words, each of those things can be seen as an alternative to something else. So if I ask JB, what did you encounter when you drove your bike to Des Moines, and he says this, I'm, I'm thinking, hey, he could have encountered nice weather, could have encountered really dry weather, as a matter of fact, and he could have encountered really calm weather, in which case the bike ride would have been very easy. So, um, so here's my point, uh, Mark, Chet, bunch of you, that essentially when you see something like Ephesians 2.8, by the grace you are saved through faith, that grace at the front of the sentence, we would normally, in kind of normal parlance, we would call that in an emphatic position. What I'm suggesting is, saying something is emphatic is saying, essentially, that it is this, not some alternative. Like, for example, you're not saved by works. See? By grace, you're saved. So in the back of his mind, the author's got alternatives that might have been true, but he's putting that in an emphatic position to say, it's this, you might say, it's by grace, not that thing over there. That's what, that's what I'm defining as what emphasis means. Emphasis means this, not some alternative. Are you intentionally choosing words that are uh, quite far apart in meaning for the sake of example? Or yes. could it also mean synonyms? Uh, well, it could be closer. I mean, I'm doing this for the sake of the example. Um, I mean, I suppose you could say sleet, not slush, or something like that. I mean, it could be closer. Well, I was thinking well, sleet or frozen rain. Could. Well, no, I don't know about that. That's why I tried rain and snow, which is pretty close here. Um, this could be floods as opposed to just constant water or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But these are, these are various alternatives that you would have, that you could slot in there. That you, some of them would be close, some of them not so close. So with something like this, uh, oh, Chet, let's go on. By grace, the grace that he's talked about Above, by the way, I want you to notice here, and you can see it on the same uh, screen. Up at uh, the end of verse 5, Paul says, Charity este sesos menai, by grace you are saved. And he does not have the article. Here you have the article, which is basically, basically anaphoric. That is to say, it picks that point up again. It's resumptive. So what it says is, the grace I was talking about before, by the, by the great, the grace I mentioned before, where he made us alive in Christ, by the grace you are in a safe condition, note the perfect, through faith, and this is not ex humon, out of you, from you. Now look at these three words. Theu todoran. Not todoran to theu. God's gift. Not ex ergon, not from works. So that word order of God's gift, again, has paradigmatic significance. It's not the gift of your own effort or somebody else or even a Savior who's not God. But it is gift of God, God's gift, not of works. Okay, uh, then let me just say a little bit about the double entendre thing, which is repeated signifiers. Here is what I am contending. I am contending 
that it is entirely possible to see double meaning in passages, which is then to be understood as a guy essentially repeating the signifiers with a different meaning. Now, look at this. I found this recently in the paper about Bob Costas. This was, uh, this was here in uh, uh, December 22nd. Costas will anchor a unique event. Bob Costas is ready for a cool assignment. He'll anchor the outdoor NHL game on New Year's Day. Remember that? The Sabres and the Pittsburgh Penguins? And they played outdoors. Now look what he says here. It feels to me like a very cool event, literally and figuratively. See? So, it is cold temperature and it's nifty. It is a cool event. And the way he does the explanation shows you exactly what we're talking about. What you're doing is collapsing two sentences into one sentence for the sake of literary effect. It's a shorthanding. Now, for the sake of the audience watching, as much as anything else, let's take a look at the John 1-1 passage on uh, page 247 in the Nestle text. Verse 5, John 1, verse 5. This is just a great example. Now, you guys with the versions, I want you to look this one up in the versions, please. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not katelaben auto it. All right? What does katalambano mean there? Well, if you take a look in a dictionary, it generally can have meanings in two semantic fields. One would be in the field of um, grabbing onto something, like overpowering somebody, something. And then the other would be a kind of a non-literal meaning from that, which would be to grasp in the sense of comprehend. Okay? Now, unfortunately, we can't quite do this in our language. We have grab and grasp, which are pretty close. But if you think of those as kind of the same, that's the sort of possibility you have here. Now, what do you have there? Overcome. Did not overcome it. All right, what do we have with the NIV? Understand. Understand it. How about NASB? Comprehend. All right, comprehend or understand. So you have overcome it, and you have understand or comprehend it. How can these things be? Well, it's because the two semantic fields in which this particular vocable plays uh, are both possible in this context. They're both possible in this context. Now, I would like to suggest that we at least entertain the possibility that both of them are intended and that this is a double entendre. So, you, you might say, unfortunately, we don't have a vocable that quite does it for us, but you, you could say something like, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness didn't get it. Get it, meaning either grab it or comprehend it. Now, if it means that, let's just humor me for a second and pretend like I'm right. If that's the case, what I am contending here is that essentially a double entendre is not only possible, but that what it essentially is to be understood as is a double sentence that's been collapsed into one. So in other words, this is what he's saying. The darkness did not comprehend it, and the darkness did not overcome it. And you put it together for the literary effect, and probably also for kind of the profundity of it all. Okay, now a couple of hands up on this. Justin. I just, uh, another version had master, master it. Master, that's more on the overcome it. 
Yeah. Wouldn't it be even more emphatic though to reiterate both ones, both instances individually, to be as clear as you possibly could be? Or no. See, just like it's go- like Bob Costa saying it's going to be a really cool event. Yeah, but he he spelled it out for us. Well, he did later, but you wouldn't have to because you could use you could use the Dairy Queen ice cream. I, what, what's their what's their slogan? Cool, cool hot eats cool treats, and in both case, hot and cool have those second meanings to them. I mean, not looking to be excessively funky or anything, but you know, hot eats. All right, cool treats. Well, it's it's the same sort of thing here. Now, actually, uh, Justin, what version was that? Uh, N-E-T. Oh, New Evangelical Translation. Yeah, that's a very interesting that translation that did a lot of very good things. It was then subsequently sucked into this other translation called God's Word, which is not such a good translation because they tried to kind of dumb down the language level. Remember we talked about register and language level? And they tried to do it on a register of nothing above fourth grade. Well, once you do that, you're kind of stoned on the book of Hebrews. I mean, that's just not fourth grade. I'm sorry. It just doesn't work. Uh, But, uh, well, now, Justin, this is playing on my mind here. This is very interesting. Read that again. Um, The darkness has not mastered it. See, now, mastered's pretty good. That actually gives you kind of a double entendre. You, it didn't master it, i.e., you, know, you can talk about mastering a language, all right? So comprehending and getting it, or mastering it, getting it under your control sort of literally. So that, that's, that's a pretty good translation there, pretty good translation. Chet. Uh, I'm stuck on darkness because I guess are we referring to darkness like <laughs> black? Are we talking about non-believing society? Or? Well, now you're talking about the Gospel of John, see? Remember? Shallow enough for a child to wade in, deep enough for an elephant to drown in. Right. And, uh, you know, this is, this is the light comes into the darkness. Now, I mean, it's probably more non-literal, talking about Jesus as the light of the world and so on like that. But, you know, you're raising a legitimate point. Okay? So, Chet, thank you for that. Now... Mark Wood on the train to oblivion. I really didn't understand the section about the author assuming signifiers under signifiers appearing in a text. Are we using a fancy word study? I'm just having trouble comprehending this idea. Okay. Yeah, right. and uh, I'm going to refer further to uh, Buzz has uh, got that phony excuse about the car here. But uh, could you further explain external entailment? I mean, this is what we really want to focus upon. This is, to me, this business of external entailment, guys, is probably the chief item in this chapter. And of all the things, here's a smart guy writing that down, the chief Teacher says this is the chief thing. You know, you might want to note that. All right, um, right. This is the chief thing on the chapter, and it's probably the chief thing in considering level one. Level one interpretation. I mean, it's because it's kind of non-intuitive. As as uh, Mark said, what's this business of things under them and so on? It's a good Lutheran way to talk. Let's just start with the example from the book. Let's go to the sale. All right, now, sale. Here's the first thing you've got to recognize. This word here is verbally based. Now, that is to say <clears throat> there is a verbal idea behind it, it's not like the word chalk 
or apple, which you have a denotation of a static thing. This is actually an activity going on. Now, Mark, what the basic idea of this kind of in, with, and under stuff is? That this is a giant shorthand for a sentence. You are saying X, somebody, is selling some stuff at a given location for price A at time B. Let me fill this in. Sears is selling lawnmowers at uh, Crestwood Mall at 30% off for this weekend. Okay? So if we're saying we're going to the sale... Your wife says to some other woman, hey, let's go to the sale. The question is going to be, what are they selling? How deep's the reduction? Where do we have to go? All of that. Where, does, where do all those questions come from? From the implied full sentence that that verbally based noun brings along with it. The noun is a representation of the verbal engine room of the sentence. And, now watch this. This is the important point. Is this the important point? This is the important point. When we're talking about the phrase external entailment, I invented that saying. Here's what I meant to convey by that. These things here, X, Y, Z, or Z, for those of you watching overseas, A, B, are all external to the meaning of selling. Selling has nothing to do with who's selling it, or what's being sold, or where it's being sold, or what the price reduction is. That's not in the meaning of selling. But in any given sentence where that's used, these things are entailed, but they're external to the meaning of selling. See? They're external to the meaning. They're not part of selling, but they are entailed in any given usage of that noun. So whenever I talk about a sale, I can dredge up in the back of my mind or whatever or articulate to you what's being sold, where is it being sold, what's the reduction, and all that kind of stuff. So when I use the word sale, there are external entailments. Let me say again what those are. Like who's doing it, what's being sold, how much is it off, where is it, how long does the thing go on, all that stuff. All those things I've got circled are external to the meaning of sale or selling, but are entailed by any given usage of it at a particular time. Now, all of this, this, is, this next point, I just said a few minutes ago, but it's so important, it just bears repeating. This only happens with verbally-based nouns or adjectives. In other words, it's got to be something like ministry. Apostle, called, yeah, salvation, good, sanctification, right. So not things like <clears throat> tree, donut, you know, not stuff like that, but things that are verbally based. Now, 
The, this is why I use this Lutheran phrase, in, with, and under, with that. Because in, with, and kind of hidden under, that word sale is all of this stuff. Now at this point, Andy is going to say, wait a minute, he always starts like that, wait a minute, <clears throat> how is this different from illegitimate totality transfer? You were thinking that. Okay. <clears throat> this is not illegitimate totality transfer because in ITT, what you do is you bunch together all possible meanings of the single word. Like, for example, let's take this thing about the darkness cannot overcome it. The darkness did not understand it. Now, it's an illegitimate totality transfer if I say the darkness did not understand it by overcoming it and try to put the two together to make some big giant meaning. I'm not doing that. I am saying that in different contexts, the external entailments will differ, but they'll all come along with the noun in, with, and under. So if you're talking to your wife, women love to go shopping, okay? If you talk to your wife, say, Talbot's is having a sale. Or, um, I think uh, Talbot's is having a sale. Or, well, this would be the kind of thing there would be in New York. Sur la table. Right? right? Okay. That's, uh, all right, on the table. That's this wonderful store over here in West County that has all cooking stuff. Right? Now, if you say sur la table is having a sale or Talbot's is having a sale, the word sale means the same thing. It means stuff's being sold at a discount. But the external entailments are different. She knows at Talbot's it's clothing. She knows at Sur la Table it's kitchenware. See, that's the difference. Now, almost everybody, including just about all biblical scholars, do not understand this point. They think that you have different meanings of sale. And people will say, that, oh, sale means something different here. No, it doesn't. Sale means exactly the same thing. What's different are the external entailments. Now, this can be illustrated best by the word apostle, apostolos. Apostolos means Someone who is sent as, you know, uh, Gonzalez. I mean, I think probably the best way to say that, like in the Bronx, would be as plenipotentiary ambassador, right? Uh, yeah, you, could you do that? Yeah, yeah okay. So uh, a fully empowered plenipotentiary ambassador, that's what that means. However... Every single time you use the word apostolos, you've got an external entailment problem. Who's sending the guy? To whom is the guy being sent? Plenty potentiary? Power for what? With what power? How long does that commission endure? See, all of those things are different. Now, to illustrate this, we have three different Clearly, clearly different uses of apostolos in the New Testament. So you have, for example, St. Paul in Romans 1.1 talks about himself as an apostolos of Jesus Christ. And you know the example in the book where I take you into the book of Acts and show that apostolos is I am sending you to preach to them in darkness and so on. However... In Philippians 2.25, Epaphroditus is called the Apostolos of 
the Philippian church, who came to Rome when Paul was sick to bring him comfort and aid. All right? He's the fully empowered ambassador of the church at Philippi. Does this mean that his commission was to preach the gospel to the Gentiles? No. See, his apostolate had different external entailments. And then, as probably the best example, I've got to get the verse right here, Hebrews 3.1. Our Lord Jesus Christ is called the Apostolos of the Father. Well, his mission is to save us from our sins and to plead before God as our great high priest. Tell you what, that ain't the commission of Epaphroditus. And it's also not Paul's commission. Now, let's see how we're doing on this. Hutch? Paul? commissioned to preach to the Gentiles and the Jews, to those in darkness. Epaphroditus, to bring comfort to Paul as an official representative of the church at Philippi, and our Lord Jesus Christ as the Apostolos of the Father to deal with our sins. Are those three different meanings of Apostolos? No. No. They are the same meaning. They are different external entailments. And the fact is, what you got to do is find out what the external entailments are. Now, on Wednesday, we're going to go on. We are going to be laborious about this, because you got to get this. Guys, this is what so much of biblical argumentation revolves around. What the external entailments are of verbally based nouns and adjectives. Now, here is the chief thing that I got to tell you at this point, and it's the one thing that students just are impervious to. They just don't get this point. Please get this point, will you? How do we go about getting the external entailment? What we have to do is find the concomitant verb. We gotta find the verbal root. You don't just go around looking up apostolos. You look up if you want to know what Paul what the external I mean let's just talk Vels here for a second. If you want to know what the external entailments are of Paul's apostleship, look up apostello and find that Jesus is sending Paul to do something. And it'll tell you what it is. Or, well, I, I'm going getting ahead of myself here. I'm saying Jesus is sending. Find out who's sending Paul. See? Who's sending Paul? To whom is he sending Paul? Why is he sending Paul? See, what's the purpose of the thing? That's the external entailment. And here's what, I, here's what I would say. is what you've got to realize then is that with the external entailment of apostolos for Paul. That whole thing, in, with, and under, gets sucked up and assumed when Paul uses the noun apostolos about himself. Thus, in the book, let's just take, this will be the last thing we'll do today, Let's just take this in the book then, in chapter 8, because I laid out the passage for you. On page 190. It's from Acts 26, 16 to 18. So he says here, For for this I appeared to you, to pick you out as a hyperete, a servant, and a witness of the things which you saw with respect to me, and of which I will appear to you, picking you out from the people and the nations, unto whom, now here's our verb, right here, 
I am sending you. Boy, how much better could you get than that? I am sending you. To open their eyes, to turn them from darkness into light, and the power of Satan unto God, that they may get forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith which is in me. So, this gives you, you might say, the external entailments of apostolus as applied to Paul. That Jesus selects him out of the nations and the peoples to send them to turn people from darkness into light that they might receive the forgiveness of sins. So when Paul says he's an apostle, that baggage is coming along here, and that whole business of why Jesus sent him would not apply to Epaphroditus. You can say Epaphroditus is an apostolus of the Philippians. It's got the same meaning, plenipotentiary ambassador, different external entailments. Different external entailments. So, uh, now for next time then, I want to make sure everybody's got finished exercises 11 and 12. And I'm, I'm interested in 12, that this clay tusk business of being called. So please, in the concordance, in your Moulton Geden concordance, or in, in something else that you've got, you gotta do this by the verb, kaleo, not looking up other examples of clay tuss. That's what's so hard for people to get. Okay? Good. We'll see you next time.